Hey everybody, welcome to the Calhoun Ward Living Histories Podcast. I am your host, John Phillips, a member of the Calhoun Ward. Let's dive in and learn more about our ward members. My name is uh, Wolfgang Irvin Carl Hado. That's, that's a mouthful. Um, you, you have to consider I was born in uh, Germany in 1949, and uh, the town was uh, called Dachau, not to be confused with the concentration camp. Uh, that was outside the town, and Dachau is, is a city, not a very large city, but it is a city. And the only thing that I could focus on that links me to Dachau when I was a young boy, I believe I was about three years old. That's about as far back as I can go in my memory. Um, I had a tricycle, had a chrome handlebar, and a man, several, I guess the next building over. Of course, these were barracks that the German soldiers stayed in during the, you know, during the war. That was after war. That was uh, redesigned and rebuilt to uh, be housing for the German people because so much was destroyed. Uh, the man down the next house, he had a, a raven, uh, which is a larger bird than a crow. But they can be trained well. They can they can teach them to talk and all. But as ravens do, they all like to collect shiny things. Well, he had his eye on my tricycle, and the raven come flying over, scared me half to death. All I remember was screaming and yelling. The raven holding on to my handlebars, and we had uh, two German shepherds, and they they came flying out, and the bird flew off because they were fixing to get the bird. <laughs> But um, the other thing I can remember from there was there was a creek that ran beside our, our building. And uh, if my mother didn't keep an eye on me, I was gone. I mean, that's the way I've been all my life. If she turned around, I was gone. And uh, I just a wanderer, I guess I like to just wander off. But uh, I took my shoes and, and let, pretended they were boats. And I remember I let them float down the stream. <laughs> and uh, that's about the only two things I remember from where I was born. And we left there. Uh, we moved to a town called Wallaceburg, no, Waltrip. And uh, it was, you could tell, I mean, I remember seeing things where buildings used to be, but now it's all grass, and every once in a while you see part of a, a rock fence and that was all bombed out during the war. And where we lived was all brand new apartments that were built, two-story apartments. Um, my dad worked in a coal mine, which was probably about four miles, three miles down the road. And um, he went, uh, he worked during the day at the coal mine, and at night he went to Volkswagen uh, factory training school. Uh, he learned everything he could about Volkswagen, bumper to bumper, uh, just knew them all. And uh, at that time, Volkswagen was becoming very, very popular. And in North America, they started Volkswagen of North America, and uh, they were getting people that had the money to open up dealerships. And uh, I remember Dad wanted to... Um, 
come to the United States. And the reason he wanted to do that, we used to, he used to tell stories at the breakfast table in the mornings and, you know, Sunday morning. And uh, we uh, that, that was the one big thing that I remember from our family that we did as a tradition for a pretty good while. That we'd have breakfast Sunday morning and then talk about things that mom and dad experienced during the war and let me know, you know, that way I had a knowledge of what went on and not heard it through other sources. But... Uh, he got drafted when he was 16 into the Navy, and uh, Mom and Dad didn't need to know each other at that time, but she got drafted into uh, the Luftwaffe, which is the Air Force. She was a, a radio, radar technician, kind of. You know, they watched the radar screens and let, the, let everybody know that planes were coming. Uh, that was in the, in the town area and everything. And Dad got drafted and put onto a supply submarine, and he was uh, he was pretty young. They said they transferred him from the submarine to a ship that was captured when when Germany had captured France, and there were a lot of ships, and they re-outfitted the ships, and uh, he was put on what's called a heavy cruiser because it had so many guns on it, and. Uh, they patrolled the Mediterranean. I figure, I think about that time, he was probably about 17 and a half, almost 18 years old. And uh, four American PT boats sunk the ship that night. And uh, he was in the water for like 78 hours, something like that, when they finally got picked up. Uh, he told me he was blind for about, I guess, two months because of all the oil and everything in the water. And, you know, it took time for it to clear up. But they put him in a, in, well, all the guys that they got, they all went to a, a POW camp in Italy. And uh, the, uh, the Allies had already captured Italy by then. And uh, it was operated by uh, the U.S. Army. And all the stories they told them about how great America is and all that, which is true. Um, he, he made up his mind he was going to move to America whenever he could. So um, as we went along and he, he got uh, got his training done into Volkswagen and all, he started riding to the United States and uh, couldn't get in because immigration at that time was closed. They shut immigration down right after the war because there were so many people that couldn't speak English which is probably something we need to do now, but um, they wanted the population that was non-English speaking to assimilate, which means all their children are going to American schools and uh, you know they're learning the language, they're learning the history, they're learning to read and write and all this stuff. So they didn't, they, this was back in the mid fifties, uh, around 55, yeah, is when he was trying to apply, and he couldn't get into the United States, so he started applying in Canada, and we found a sponsor, and uh, what the sponsor, and in between that time, mom and dad were both, they had the German-English book, and they were reading, doing what they were supposed to, because even in Canada, the at that time, immigration, the rules were, 
You had to be able to speak English. You had to be able to understand English, read English, to where you could communicate with with non-German speaking people. You know, so that you weren't dependent on government for assistance, bilingual assistance. And uh, so they did all that, and finally we he found a sponsor. Uh, we got it, got the green light to go, and. Uh, I was, I had just turned seven years old and uh, just started, just started school in Germany. And uh, then we got passage on a ship and we left Germany, came to Canada, and uh, I lived in Canada. So, um, the uh, the one thing that really stands out in my mind now, um, I believe I was about five and a half, six years old at this time. And the reason it, it has such an impact in my life is because it deals with communism. And the reason it's so fresh in my mind now is because what I'm seeing happening to our country right now is a reflection on what communism is. And, and it's here, and it's being pushed on us. I remember mom and dad had made plans, and he'd, we'd already been researching moving to Canada. And mom knew that we would probably never go back. She wanted to see her mother. And her sisters. But she had five sisters and one brother. And they all lived pretty much in the most of them lived in the same house. So she wanted to spend that time to see them before we moved. And I think one of the sisters was already living in the United States. That was Sister Lisa. She got out. She was married to a Russian. And they got out. Um, he applied for amnesty because the Russians were after him. They were going to kill him. And uh, they were, I think it was still towards the end of the war when they were able to get out. But the rest of the sisters were still there. And so we made plans to go see him. And they lived in eastern Germany, which after the war, of course, we know that the Russians took over East, East Germany and uh, ran the blockade. And um, we put in visa and passports to, to go to see my grandmother. Well, give me a napkin, honey. Um, so we went, we went with train and, uh, once we got, once we got to the, uh, 
border. They let the train through, and then the train was stopped. Now, of course, this was in, in the middle of the winter when we were going to see her. And as Russians do, they stopped the train. They made everybody get off. And it was like, I think my mom told me, she said it was about 17 below zero. And everybody had to stand in line outside the train while the Russians and the East Germans all went through the entire train searching for anything that they thought would be illegal or suspicious or whatever. And they go down the line and it's always papers, papers, papers. You know, you have to show your papers. And they would go over the papers and look at everything in the papers. And three hours later, we were able to get back on the train. And I remember I got an earache out of it because of being out in the cold and everything and not really being clothed and prepared for that, you know. And uh, they let the train go. We we visited, and I got to see a lot of my cousins, and, we, you know, it was a good time. But Mom and Dad were really worried because they didn't know if we were going to be able to come back home. Because once you get on that train you go through the same process before they let the train over the border. And same thing again, everybody off the train, search the train, check the papers, and, you know, they could very well have just picked people out of the line. That's it. You know, you're not going anywhere, and if it's kids involved, the kids go one place and the parents go to another and never see each other again. That's just the way communism works, you know, uh, for whatever reason. Um, you know, if they find out Dad was in the Navy, a German Navy or whatever, you know, maybe they wanted retro, you know, retaliation. That's just how those people are. If you're under communist rule, you're, you know, you can expect that to happen. But um, we made it back home. And, uh, that was okay. And, um, you know, Mom was upset for quite some time because she knew that we would probably never be able to go back, you know, and... Uh, which was true. We never, we never went back to Germany. We never went back for a visit. You know, it was just writing letters and correspondence. And, you know, mom found out later that her mom had died. And of course she couldn't go and that would upset her for a while, you know, but, um, uh, finally we got uh, the okay to go to, to Canada. And so we boarded the ship and we left and, uh, arrived, uh, I think it was 10 days later. Of course, mom, as soon as we were out of sight of land, she was seasick. And she didn't get back to feeling normal until somebody said, land ho. <laughs> you know, and Dad being in, in the Navy and everything, and you know, of course, he stayed. The, the, I mean, we were, we were catching the edge of a, what was a hurricane, I guess, or a typhoon. And, you know, that's what they call them when they're in the middle of the ocean. And... Uh, of course, he thought he was in the Navy. He was in there with the other guys and taking shots of rum and, you know, <laughs> arms locked and yo-ho-ho -ho and all that good stuff, you know, and he was he was having the time of his life. And, um, but we we got to uh, Windsor, which is across the, uh, the lake. It was actually St. Lawrence Seaway that's between the all the Great Lakes and Detroit's across the river. I mean, well, yeah, at that point it was the river. It wasn't quite at the lake. But anyway, the Detroit's across from Windsor. And we had to stay there. Um, Dad was working for somebody that temporarily, uh, I guess we were there maybe three months, 
to get everything processed in and all that stuff and get it set up for uh, our sponsor. And then we left Windsor and moved up to a uh, um, place called Wallaceburg. And uh, we were there for a while. And, you know, Volkswagen of America was kicking off really, really big. And uh, um, he was the only... Not the only one. I mean, there were others, but not where we were at the time. He was he was Volkswagen trained. He knew everything from the front bumper bolt to the back bumper bolt and anything in between. And uh, he would actually teach mechanics how to work on Volkswagens. I mean, these were mechanics that already knew how to work on cars, but they knew nothing about Volkswagen, the particulars and all the adjustments and all this stuff. And... Uh, what it, what happened was it got to a point rich men were wanting to open dealerships. So we were in Wallaceburg, I guess, maybe a year and a half, and all of a sudden he got contacted by somebody wanting to help him start a dealership. So Dad just took him, rooted us up, and went to another town. And uh, we did that about five times and uh, ended up in northern and we started out in southern Ontario, and then we went 600 miles north into northern Ontario to a place called Smith Falls. And uh, he was actually master mechanic, trainer, and service manager, because these guys didn't know anything about a dealership. And he, he would get the dealership started and train the mechanics how to work on them. And... This was, this was back in 62. Of course, immigration to America was still closed. But what they look for is what skill do you have? Is it a skill that we need in our country? Um, can you speak the language, understand, read, write, and everything? That you, you, you don't need assistance with that. Do you have a sponsor? And a sponsor has to provide you a place to live and guarantee you a job. Well, he fit all that criteria. So all the way down in Brunswick, Georgia, two guys, Brown and Gay, that was their last names, um, wanted to open up a Volkswagen dealership in Brunswick, Georgia. So Dad went down, uh, took him about a week and a half to get back to look at everything. And when he went down there, they were still in construction with the dealership. They were getting ready to finish it up and had Volkswagen signs already, you know, to where they could put them up and all. And uh, <clears throat> he came back and ended up, just like we did from moving from Germany, we sold everything we had, and all we had was like a two big crates when we moved Germany with personal belongings. Well, this move, we had nothing. He sold the car, he sold all the furniture, got rid of everything. All we had was a Volkswagen. It was a 19, 1959 Volkswagen Beetle. It was mom and dad in the front seat. It was me and a 130-pound German Shepherd in the back seat and a suitcase in by the back window. And we left from northern Ontario, driving down to Brunswick, Georgia. It took us about four days to do it and 1,300 miles. I believe that's what it rounded out to. 
And uh, I mean, I, I was cramped. I was sitting in one corner and the German Shepherd had the rest of it. And I uh, uh, got, got down to Brunswick in March of 1962. And my dear wife was born in March of 1962. <laughs> uh, that was pretty ironic. So uh, and that was a pretty, pretty big deal. Um, just growing up, you know, to the age seven in Germany. And I mean, I, I've covered, I, I've probably covered more miles in more countries from the age of seven, uh, uh, one to 12 than most people see in their lifetime, you know? I mean, it was just, um, and with that many moves, you just don't, you just don't make lifelong friends, you know? Uh, but um, Brunswick, we were there, we were there longer than I, I was probably anywhere at, at my young age. And uh, I got that, we got down there, I was in the fifth grade. I started, I finished fifth grade in uh, Goodyear Elementary School down there in Brunswick. And uh, we ended up, we moved to uh, Blythe Island. We had some property there that dad got. And uh, my sixth grade was at Sydney Lanier Elementary School in, in, in Brunswick itself. And uh, then I went to junior high, which was a brand new junior high at that time. It was Jane Macon Junior High. And I went through all three grades. Well, that was back when we did junior high and three, that's three grades, seventh through uh, ninth. And then I went to, uh, started um, high school at Glen Academy, which is a really prestigious high school. It's set up like a college campus. Math building, all math, trigonometry, and, and algebra, and all the math stuff, it was all housed in one building. Now, Glen Academy was, it was built back in 17, I think it was somewhere around 17, late 80, uh, 70s or 1780s, something like that. It was a military school for young boys. And <clears throat> very, very prestigious, especially in, in that part of the country. You know, Glen Academy football program was awesome. But uh, the English building was one building, science building was one building. It was like a college campus. They even had two fraternities there for high school students. And most of the time, you got fraternities in college. But they had two fraternities at, at that school. And uh, so I was, I was really feeling good about going to Glen Academy, you know, and then ended up, we we left there and moved up to uh, Jonesboro, right outside of uh, Atlanta. And I've been in the Atlanta area ever since, you know, but uh, um, I, Brunswick was, uh, it was pretty unique. Um, you know, went from the woods and the cold weather and all the way down to Brunswick, Georgia, and the humidity and the sand gnats. And uh, that first year there, I didn't know if I was going to make it. My dog didn't know if he was going to make it. I mean, hot, you know, and he's 
had all that hair on him. <laughs> he was used to cold weather, and you know, he just he'd look at me when it was hot and everything. Like, oh, man. You know, <laughs> but uh, it, it was you know it was a totally different experience. You know, I mean, just all the extremes, uh, the way people live in different areas, and um, so. Um, that was that was my young days, and uh, the one thing that was disturbing to me, really, most of my life, uh, when I really started realizing it from about age age ten. Um, I don't know. My dad probably had a lot of demons. Uh, I don't know because he never talked much about it. Might have been carrying a lot of baggage from the war, all these things. Um, you know, there's one important thing that I just want to mention. Uh, my grandfather, um, he was a he was a businessman, and uh, uh, it was a town called Stettin. And at that at the time, Hitler was gaining power and, and coming up, and they they were going to have elections, and they were going to Hitler was running for chancellor. And Chancellor would be like the president, you know. I mean, it was, uh, um, that's, at that time, if you're Chancellor, you run the country. You're, you know, and that's what they were pushing for. And uh, the brown shirts running around, you know, to build Hitler up and all this kind of like, I would classify the brown shirts kind of like an Antifa to go out and, and stir up things and all this stuff, you know. And, um, the other six businessmen in town, uh, they didn't like Hitler. They, they did not like Hitler. They were going to vote against Hitler. And at that time, the, uh, of course, the SS was the Hitler's private, you know, police force. Um, and, you know, the SS is known not to be very nice. So what they did, and, and it happened in a lot of other towns. Uh, and I still I have the obituary and everything that my uh, cousin sent. Uh, I've got the letter that they sent to uh, my grandmother. Um, they rounded them all up at three o'clock in the morning, took all the men out, and executed them. And the letter came back to my grandmother stating that. Um, her husband had uh, had a serious accident, and uh, that uh, it, I guess it translated out had life-threatening uh, situation, and uh, he's passed away. And on the very bottom, it's got the the hawk, the eagle, and the swastika. In German, they call it Heukenkloss which is the eagle and the cross, but it was the swastika. And underneath that it had the guy's signature, and on the very bottom of that it says Heil Hitler. And they had the obituary on, uh, that she mailed me on that, but um, basically they assassinated him, you know. And, um, you know, that was, 
that was a pretty bad time. So dad, he's carrying that baggage because he, he wasn't drafted at that time. He was just, you know, he was a young boy. He was probably only 12, 13 years old when that happened. Well, I take it back, no. It was right after. They might have done that right after they drafted him because he had the German, the Navy, had a Navy uh, uniform on. And I think that was like goodbye pictures. And then when, when he got drafted and sent out, then that's when they had, had assassinated him. So from Brunswick, you know, I, I never did make a lot of friends. We just moved too much. You know, every, every time I would make a friend, we'd move. So I, as far as making a lot of friends, long life friends, I never did do that. And, you know, I had a few friends in Brunswick that I can still recall their names, you know, the Drotty Boys and uh, Andrew Phillips and, you know, there's about two two others. But, you know, we had a, we had a good friendship thing, you know, and uh, Billy Lingo, me and him hunted all the time, squirrel hunting and stuff, and I had a good good time with him. But as far as a lot of friends, I didn't have any. I, I was pretty much a loner. And that's because of all the moving. And once again, you know, Dad says, well, we're going, we're going up to, uh, I got a job in Forest Park as a service manager, so we're going up there. So carrying all the baggage he carried from the war and everything else, Dad did a lot of drinking. He was, he was an alcoholic, period. And uh, for that reason, he never spent a lot of time with me. You know, Dad, um, if he was home, he was drunk. And in the mornings, he would be sober and go to work. He was never he was never late, ever always on time. You know, I guess you'd call him like a nine o'clock, nine to five. You know, sober, no drinks during the day. Got off work, hit the bottle. He'd be, he'd be drunk by six o'clock. You know, so I stayed away from the house as much as I could. You know, I I knew that if I looked at my watch. Yeah, 6.30, I can go home now. He's passed out, so I went home, you know. But uh, if, I, if, if, if it was a weekend, from the time the sun come up, I'd be gone. I didn't want to be around, you know. But uh, when we moved from Brunswick, that, I loved Glen Academy. I mean, that was the best school. I'd always, I always failed math or just barely passed it. I had a math teacher that was so awesome. I mean, I was learning math that I never thought I could do, you know. And I mean, that if I would have finished Glen Academy, I don't know what, you know, I mean, I would have graduated there. I would. There's no telling what I could have accomplished if we would have stayed there. But when he moved us to, to, Brun, uh, to Jonesboro, I told him right then, I said, this is the last time I'll ever move. You'll never get me to move with you again, period. I come so close to not even leaving Brunswick because I, I knew I could have went to two families and they would have took me in and I could have stayed there. But I went and uh, finished. Well, I, I, I went to Jonesboro High School. I finished the 10th grade there. And then at the start of the 11th grade, I just went to the principal's office. I was already 17. I just told him, I said, that's it, I'm done, I quit. I signed the papers, that's it, went to work full-time, been working full-time ever since. You know, and that, that was, that's pretty much the end of, end of my youth as far as going to school and, and all this stuff, that's the end of that. And then after that, you know, uh, got married, three months later got drafted. 
know, and uh, I went, you know, and pay payback in those days. If I if you were making one hundred and twenty five dollars a week, you were making good money. That was good money. You know, I, heck, I remember mom, especially when we were living in Canada, she could take ten dollars, go grocery shopping, and that's a week's worth of food for my dad, my mother, and myself with ten, for ten dollars. Rent we the rent we paid at the house we were living in. $50 a month. That's all that was, you know. But when I got home from Vietnam, I went to work at the Ford Hapeville assembly plant, building, uh, I was working on the front ends, putting front ends pieces together on the, on the Grand Torino. I was making, I working night shift, third, third shift, 4.35 an hour. People looked at me like, man, can I get a job there? That was good money when I got out. You know, four thirty-five an hour. You can't get them to work for $15 an hour now. <laughs> you know, but uh, that, was, that was good money. But I, I, I couldn't handle that long because you, you're, you're constantly, you're running 50 cars an hour. Those front ends are coming by, put this plate on, put that plate on, two brackets here, go to the next one. You can't take a break until that relief man comes to you. If you got to go to the bathroom, you better hold it. <laughs> you know, you can't leave that line until that break. relief guy gets there. I'll be there in a minute. I'm holding one over here. Oh, man, come on, hurry up. <laughs> but uh, it was too much repetition. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting there. I've never been that kind of, uh, that I can't hold a job like that, you know. I can't hold a job to where I go in and have that kind of repetition. At that, at that time in my life, I couldn't do it. I was always a tinker, you know. I've, I tell you what, I, I consider myself really a, a self-made man. Dad didn't teach me nothing. You know, I mean, he would take me to work with him when I was out of school, and I'd wash parts for the guys and learn what the parts are. But as far as him really teaching me and showing me stuff, he didn't. I remember tinkering on, on anything I could find to see what make it work. I'd take it apart and see if I could put it back together again. And that's, I mean, that's just how I've always been, you know. You could give me a book and tell me to sit there and read that, and then go do it. I've got the concept, but if I've never seen it done, and I can't take the book, and if there's no picture to show me what he's talking about this, I'd have a hard time. But now I could sit there and take something apart and lay a part down here, laying the part down here and organize it, and get it all disassembled, I'd go back and put it all back together. And as far as having some somebody like a big brother, I never had that, you know. I never stayed anywhere long enough to have a big brother, you know. And, I mean, I, everything I've learned is either I'm, I'm doing that job, you know. Uh, I mean, I, there's so much I can do, you know. I, I, I've done heavy equipment. I've done plumbing. I've done, you know, carpentry work. I, I mean... So much stuff I've done in my life, 
that I mean I could I could go out and if my back would be all right and my body could handle I could go out there and just about get any job I want with the exception of being a, an engineer and running a whole job site you know but if if you're talking about a skilled job that a, a skilled craftsman I could do it you know and I did that all on my own you know um but it's just <clears throat> that's why I think a lot of times people misunderstand me because I, I tell you the two things the two things that I, I can really pat my dad on the back for that he taught me well actually three things take pride in what you do number one Take pride in what you do. He said, it doesn't matter what you do. Do it right the first time. He said, if you don't do it right the first time, it's on you the second time. And by taking pride in what you do, he said, make sure that it doesn't matter if you're a dishwasher or a pots and pan washer. You be the best pots and pan washer that anybody's ever seen. He said, if, if you apply those principles to your life, he said, you can't go wrong. You know, and, and that's the way I've always been. And I guess I have just grown up at the time I grew up. Relied so much on common sense. And it relied on your moral convictions. I mean, we weren't we weren't a big church-going family. In fact, Dad never went to church. Well, the only time he went to Lutheran church was when there was communion, which is sacrament. You know, they did that I think once a month, and and they served wine, and he went to get the shot of wine. That's what he went for. But <laughs> Mom would go, but. Um, you know, they, they weren't religious people. They never, it was never on Sunday we went to church. But I always knew, I always knew in my heart, because I mean, I, I, I knew Bible stories and stuff, and I mean, I, I've, I've read passages in Scripture because we had a Bible, but I always believed in God the Father. I always believed in Jesus Christ. I always knew that the Holy Ghost would speak to you because there's been times in my life that I would get a, brief moment of something, uh, don't do that, you know, uh, stay away, go back, you know. I'd get those moments, and I, I think the Lord's been communicating with me all my life, and I never realized it until I joined the church, you know. But um, it, it's, it, I think I could see it on my grandson, my oldest grandson, when I would try to get him to do things and it would it would frustrate me a little bit you know and, and it's the way I would tell him I said no you can't do it that way let me show you again and he'd get frustrated because I'm showing him again but you you show him again and you show him what you did wrong and you show him what to do that's how you learn and from what I see now uh, so many times it just goes in one ear and out the other and they do the same mistake again and I think I'm misunderstood in, in that aspect because it's just how I was, how I grew up 
in doing things, you know, that it's maybe it's hard for some people to figure out how, I, you know, I just, here's how you do it, you know. Do it. But, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I didn't go to school to learn what I, I can do as far as a trade, a skill. You know, I learned that, most of that on my own, and then just getting a job and doing it, just, you know. Somebody would hire me, this is what I want done, and I could figure it out, you know. And uh, that's just how I did all that. My, my cousin Nick, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, uh, we were kind of estranged. We never got a chance to really see each other much. Uh, I, think, I think in our lifespan, Nick and I have only seen each other three times. Um, once when we were young, um, Lisa and uh, Boris and the boys, they came up and saw us up in Canada. And then uh, the next time I saw uh, Nick was when Lisa had moved down here to Georgia. She was uh, going to divorce uh, Boris, and she moved down here to be with Mom and, and get a job. And Nick came down, and then a little later, uh, Nick went off. Well, he was just here for a little while, and Nick was going to college in Colorado. Tony came down for a little bit, and that's the last time we, we have ever been physically together. But Nick and I communicated all the time. Um, he, uh, he, he, had a, he had a Volkswagen bus, and he was going to Colorado to, to school and uh, college out there. And uh, he got run off the road by a tractor trailer. And uh, the accident was pretty severe. It, it ended up making him a quadriplegic. And um, of course, the, there was a lawsuit involved and everything. And I think uh, back when that happened, that was uh, early 70s. And I think he was awarded several million dollars. But, you know, it wasn't that money just took care of him for the rest of his life, you know, and then um, Nick passed away about, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Uh, we communicated a lot. I mean, we, you know, we, we phone called each other back and forth. He was, I mean, he, you know, I mean, he could talk, but as far as doing any, he, you know, he's pretty much bedridden. I mean, it's, it's a miracle. So he was the same age as me, and I think he Nick passed um, at age 70, I think, maybe 71. Yeah, I think he was 71. Me and it, our birthdays were only like maybe four or five months apart. And uh, it amazed me that Nick made it as long as he did. I mean, you know, he, he had a live-in nurse that stayed there 24-7, take care of him. He had a... Um, a van that uh, they had given him that's completely set up for him, you know, and uh, um, I mean, he, you know, he had the help he needed, and uh, Lisa, of course, took care of him for a long time. Uh, she went back up there when he had his accident, you know, because she knew she was going to need to be there, and, uh, but, uh, you know, we got... Uh, I mean, my cousin Monica, which was my dad's sister's daughter, uh, we we communicate. I mean, you know, we we have correspondence, 
but uh, what was what was weird was uh, I guess it's been maybe ten years ago I got a letter in the mail from Germany and I thought what the heck is this you know and uh, I opened it up and it was in German and got it translated and basically it was my cousin Monica reaching out to me asking me if I am the Wolfgang uh, Wolfgang Hado that father is Erwin Carl Hado and you know given the family history and I I mean it just flabbergasted me I mean I I got all choked up, you know, and, and I couldn't believe it. And uh, finally we started communicating and both of us were so happy. I thought, man, I, you know, I had no idea. And uh, so, you know, we, she sent me a lot of stuff to help with the family history stuff and everything. And, uh, um, but, you know, there's, there's not much correspondence with most you know, I mean, Lisa's passed away. Uh, you know, mom mom died two years ago, so that took care of all the sisters. All the sisters are gone. I know Paul, her brother, he's dead. I mean, all that side of the family's gone, you know. Uh, my dad, he died uh, back in 93, I think it was. Um, finally, the liver gave out, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, I mean... My liver looked pretty bad when they gave me a transplant and everything, but mine was due to uh, hepatitis C, and his was due to uh, Canadian mist, you know, so. <laughs> but uh, my hobbies and interests have always been um, pretty much outdoors. I, I, I love to camp, I love to fish, and I love to hunt. And... Uh, my hunting actually starts uh, after we had moved to Brunswick, Georgia. Um, well, take it back up in Smith Falls, I had a bow and arrow, and I would go hunt rabbit and pheasant because we had a lot of pheasant, a lot of rabbit up there, and I would try to take out some with my bow. And uh, you know, I've always I've always enjoyed doing that. But um, my hunting really took off after we got down to Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, the first place we had moved uh, when we got there that we lived at was uh, a pretty good sized subdivision. Uh, the houses were all built like what you would call a, uh, a flat roof Florida cinder block house. And, uh, you know, that's where they tar the roof and gravel it. And uh, that's the style of housing that was there. And uh, the young boy that, well, my age, lived across the street, had two sisters and his dad um, um, worked out at the, uh, what was called the Glencoe Naval Air Station, which had two of the largest world-constructed buildings in history uh, that were blimp hangars. For during World War II, they would send the, the blimps out to spot for submarines and stuff um, because in, in Brunswick they had a... Uh, a boiler company that built stuff for submarines, in, you know, right there by the harbor. And so they, but um, Billy was, him and his dad used to go do a lot of squirrel hunting. 
and uh, they got me to go with them the first time, and Billy and I just, we hit it off as friends. I mean, you know, we played together and everything, and uh, we just had we just had a great time. I, I remember his dad had a, a little John boat with a little motor on it, and we would go up to uh, Darien and put in um, right there at the Altamaha River. We would run up the river, and there was a couple of spots that they always liked to go, and you just go kind of into a little cove, park the boat, and it was a lot of swamp. It was, wasn't all totally swampy, but, I mean, there was, you know, hard ground areas, and there'd be a little swamp bog and all, and we would go around, and, I mean, we would, we would get our limit on squirrels every time we went, you know, and uh, we just had a blast. I, I enjoyed it. And... Uh, I remember I had, uh, I was hunting with a 410 shotgun at the time, single shot. And then uh, uh, I, I don't remember how I got it. I ended up getting a 16 gauge and uh, hunted with that. And I remember going in town, uh, you know, and we got to consider the times were different. And people back then, if they got mad at one another, they would probably get into a fist fight. Very few times did, I mean, nobody ever got, I mean, you had crazy people everywhere, but just just to be mad in a fight, nobody got a gun. Nobody, you know, nobody got a knife. And things like that just didn't happen, you know. I went to a pawn shop, and there was a 12-gauge shotgun, bolt action, with a clip. You could put a couple of rounds in the clip. And at age 14, I, I bought it for $20 and came out of there and had bought my own shotgun at age 14. And it, it was legal, you know. And, I mean, I never once thought about taking a gun and going and shooting anybody. I mean, I, I got me a good 12-gauge to go hunt with, you know. that's Things were just that way back then. But, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, deer uh, at that particular stage... You know, you're talking early 60s, mid 60s. Um, I don't know exactly where the change came, but you weren't allowed to kill but one buck in a season. And there were no doe days. You know, I mean, and, and this is in a, Glen County is a high, high deer populated area, especially now. I mean, you statewide, I think you can kill 12 does and two bucks. But they've got a lot of regulations now to where the antler size, how much spread, and all that stuff. And it's, I, I like it, you know. But um, that's been one of them. And fishing, I love to go fish. You know, find a little pond somewhere that, you know, you just, there was so much land that you could go on that was owned by timber companies. And nobody, cared if you went on that property you could just go hunt it was more or less considered public land and we would find little pools of you know little ponds and catch big bluegill in them and I, I mean we just I just loved it and uh if we camped whatever we like if we got you know of course during hunting season if we got squirrels or you know uh, we would we would clean them and cook them right there we had a we had a procedure where we took a coffee used to come in a big pound can you know and you used the key to open up the can and you could reuse the lid and what we would do is take and collect those cans and what we would do is clean the squirrels get them all cleaned up washed up 
and we would put on the bottom we would put like a chopped up tomato i mean a potato throw a little rice in there a couple of you know kind of a small layer of onion put the squirrel in there and then repaint the layer all the way up and then put water you know in it till it was still you know below the lid but you know had enough water in it we closed the lid up and then of course we'd get a campfire going and everything and dig a, a pit on one side and we would take the coals slide the coals over to the bottom of it in, in the pit take the can set the cannon on top of the coals and then rake coals all around it put some coals on top and then cover it up with dirt and then we'd just sit there and have a good time and talk and you know shoot the breeze and a little later on, we'd undig it and take the can out, and it's all cooked up and everything. And boy, I tell you, it was, that, that, that was the best. You know, sometimes we take potatoes and just throw them in the coals. You know, every once in a while, roll the potato over, make sure you got coals on them. Yeah, about 30, 40 minutes, pull them out and eat them. You know, that was the best baked potato you ever had. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah. Um, that was that's really to that to this date. I mean, I don't get to hunt like I used to, but um, as far as you know, the three things I really loved was camping, and hunting, and fishing. And uh, I mean, we used to we used to camp when I lived down in Brunswick. There was an old chicken house, and I mean, it was it, you know still had a lot of sawdust in there and everything. There wasn't any more mess or nothing in there, but. We had an area that we kept kind of cleaned out and stuff, and on the weekends, that's where me and about five other guys, we would go there and, and do our campouts there and just had a good time, you know. But, um, you know, after, after moving up to uh, the Atlanta area, I went to work for a place called uh, Knox Glass. It was in Forest Park, and what we made there was like Pepsi-Cola bottles, Wesson oil bottles, um, I think some knee-high grape bottles, um, made a couple of other bottles, but you know they would they would melt. It was uh, I think ammonia and sand and some other stuff, and they would melt all that down. And uh, I mean it was all a process, you know, where the glass it squirt out just little tubes and it would go into a mold and run around and you know expand it like like a uh, glass blower does, you know, and, and the bottles would go around and cool off. And what I did was <clears throat> get the boxes ready, glue the bottoms, put the inserts in, and send them down the line. And my mom and my to be wife and her sister, twin sister, they worked there. And uh, they would get the boxes I made up, you know, and they would put the bottles in there is depending on what was running that day is the type of box I made and uh, that's where I met my first wife and uh, we got along pretty good and you know next thing I knew and I think it was uh, January January of uh, 1969 we got married and uh, about uh, I guess it was about three months later, I got a famous letter in the mail. That's how they always come. You open up and it says, greetings. <laughs> you, have been, you have been selected uh, by the Selective Service Board to, uh, it said uh, I had to go up to uh, Ponce de Leon Avenue 
in Atlanta, which was right across from the big Sears building. And uh, that was the uh, uh, induction center, draft board induction center. And it told me that it might be necessary to bring a change of clothes because you, because you might not come home that day. And uh, so basically I got drafted. Spent all day up there going through the process, you know, all the physical exams and uh, get a couple of shots. And uh, then you end up, there was a, a good-sized room and had a rows of chairs. And uh, everybody escorted in. You just go by row and, and take a chair and sit down. And uh, I was on the front row in the number four seat. And... <laughs> Here comes this drill sergeant from the United States Marine Corps, and he comes up there and he says, you, 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 here in the Marines. And the guy next to me, he starts begging the drill sergeant, I want to go, and he says, all I need is four. I want to go in the Marine Corps. My dad was a Marine. My grandfather was a Marine. Please, I got to go in the Marine. He says, you want to swap? Yes, <laughs> swap. And so he went to the Marine Corps, and then I ended up going in the Army. And he was right, I didn't get to come back home. Uh, about 6 o'clock that afternoon, we all loaded up in buses and uh, went down to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, so you figure, uh, I got married. Three months later, I got drafted. I was working at Knox Glass, making pretty good money. I think I was I think I was averaging around $150, $160 a week pay, but I had the chance to work two shifts, double that money. You know, I was doing okay. Well, the first month I was in the service, this is for a month's pay now. I got $62 a month as an E1. And right away I had to go uh, make an appointment to the uh, Judge Atkinson's office. And I told him, I said, my wife sent me a letter saying that all these bill collectors are wanting money. And I said, I'm not working and she can't afford the bills that we have, you know. And, uh, and I said, and I've signed up for an allotment. She gets a hundred. She gets a hundred dollars a month allotment. The, the government matched what part I put in, you know, I think my, my part was, uh, 50, no, my part was 40 and the government put the rest to get a hundred dollar allotment check together. And, uh, you know, the rest of it is what I had to use, but what they told me says, don't worry about your bills. We'll take care of it. I said, what are you going to do? And they told me, I said, we'll contact them. Everything's fine. And my wife at that time wrote back and said that they pretty much told everybody that they don't owe you any money. He's been drafted and the bills are clear. I, I'm sure they paid whatever they had to pay. But that's the way they did it back then, you know. But uh, $62 a month, that's all I made. So I went through basic, spent uh, eight weeks at Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, I'll never forget these two guys because that, I made two friends. We were in the same company and in the same barracks. 
and one of them was Claude Phelps, and uh, he was from Oklahoma, and uh, Frank Clark, and he was from Kansas. And when we graduated, all three of us, now my, my what they call MOS, it, it's whatever job assignment you're going to have. So my MOS was 62 Echo. Theirs was 62 Echo. All, all three of us were, and that's a heavy equipment operator because I, I had done that work, working for a guy uh, before I went to work for the uh, glass company. But um, so we were all good at running heavy equipment, you know, bulldozers and loaders and all that stuff. And uh, so we got drafted. I mean, we got sent by order to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Well, we weren't sent. Well, we, our duty was in the motor pool because we could run forklifts and things. And, and they were necessary because we got assigned to a parachute rigger company. And what they do is they, while we were there, they were training the Air Force how to drop cargo. And all the parachutes, we most of them, we, I mean, we had we had regular parachutes for people to jump out of the plane with because that's all these guys. Most of them were all airborne, except for you know a few of us like me and Clark and Claude. You know, we were we weren't airborne, we, but we were you know, we were there running heavy equipment, whether it be a big you know eighteen uh, wheeler truck or uh, big uh, rough terrain forklifts or whatever, but. Uh, so we decided, all, all three of us decided, so, well, why don't we go jump school, you know? And uh, so we told the CO, said, we'd like to go to jump school. So, okay. So they sent us back to Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, jump school's three weeks. You got, uh, you got ground week, and then you got uh, um, mock tower week, and then you got um, jump week. And... I mean, from the time you get there, you don't stop running. I mean, if you're standing in the child line, you're running. The only time you stop running is when you get in there to sit down to eat. So, you know, here you are doing double time in line while you're going in there to get something to eat. If you come out of there, you better be running. You know, if they catch you walking, you, give me that, give me 10, you know. And uh, so it, it was it was quite a challenge. And... Jump school in that session, let's see, we went through, this was January when we went through jump school at Fort Benjamin. Yeah, it wasn't snow on the ground. I mean, it'd get a little chilly, but when you run, you warm up, you know. So uh, we went through that. We went through all, everything. We, we made our jumps, and uh, we came back to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Now, what we wanted to do was go to rigor school to Fort Lee, Virginia, to learn how to pack parachutes. And uh, it, it wasn't that long of a school, you know, but uh, these parachutes are pretty big. I mean, some of some of the mock loads they simulate, I mean, it's like he really heavy stuff, and they might have, they would stack like blocks, six by six blocks of wood, you know, stack them up, and then you got a certain amount of corrugated cardboard that you put in between, the t depending on what the load is. So that if, if a load lands and it's a, a Jeep or a, a bigger truck or something, that it crushes the cardboard. 
so that it takes the, the, the load, you know, off of the, whatever you're dropping. But uh, you might have three 100-foot parachutes on a 100-foot diameter parachutes. And uh, I remember one time what they did, they had, a, they had eight guys that wanted to do a night jump. They, they were already, you know, airborne. Uh, you know, we were expecting to go ahead and have a jump with them after we got back, which we never got a chance to. But the uh, plane that dropped them misjudged where the drop zone was. And what they did is they told them to jump, but it was over a basic training in, uh, night simulation area. And they were having live machine gun fire. And they dropped them right into that. And they, they were, I mean, they were screaming and hollering at them, you know. And finally they recognized it and shut the, the machine guns down, you know. I mean, they, they can't, I mean, they're set up to where they can only shoot, you know, they can't shoot down any further or up any further. They, it was just to get that machine gun fire over your heads, you know, to make, to simulate you having to crawl through wire and stuff like that. But, you know, if they would have dropped in there when that was going off, it killed every one of them. Well, they decided what they would do. These loads, when they come rolling out, you know, that what the plane does, it, the plane comes in at 1,300 feet. Then when the plane gets ready to drop, tailgate's down and the plane goes up, you know, on a climb. And then the loads come rolling out. And there's cutters that will release the parachutes off the load to where the, you know, to deploy the bags. And the first, the first chute that comes out is what is it called an extraction chute. It's a lot of times what they use behind uh, jet airplanes that uh, looks like it's all ripped up, but it's just to slow it down. Well, they come out and they pop these cutters and the load starts coming out. Well, they rigged it up with a higher test line than necessary. And the, the chute came out and it wouldn't cut. It didn't break loose. And the plane was descending. <laughs> and they said uh, it would eventually, I think, have come, but they wanted to give them the same feeling they had. And you could see the crewmen back there cutting the cord. And then the plane went back up. But when the plane started going back up, all the loads came running out and none of the parachutes up, and they just crashed on the ground, you know. I think some, some of them got in a little trouble over it. <laughs> he said it got low enough to where you could see them guys scrambling, you know, in the eyes. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, we got, we got sent to Vietnam, and all three of us. So here we are. Frank and Claude and myself go through basic training. And I mean, I'm from Georgia, one's from Oklahoma, one's from Kansas. We go to jump school together, come back to Fort Campbell, Kentucky together. We get orders to go to Vietnam, and it doesn't say, you know, really where or who we're going to go with, you know. It just says to go because once you get there, then you're assigned. So we thought that was the end of us being together. We shook hands and all, you know, had a good time and everything and went home for 15-day leave. So 
we we you know I get on the plane. I mean they weren't there. You know I mean they they wherever they come from they took their flight from wherever you know, and uh, I get there and it's uh, come into country in a place called Cameron Bay, and that's the uh, in country processing center. I get processed, and then get on another flight, and fly up to. Uh, Right outside of Quinion, it's a place called uh, um, Charang Valley, and there's an in-country uh, training center, and you stay there for three days. And what they do is they acclimate you to the country, being in the country, and they take you through some jungle scenarios and everything, you know, to get you focused. I mean, your training and everything you went through has already got you prepared, um, especially when when you get orders to go, you go through a class uh, that's uh, simulation, like a Vietnam simulation. And so in the whole time you're, you're in the stands, you, you have to run in the stands and, and it's always Winning Vietnam, winning Vietnam, kill, 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 winning Vietnam, and and this is how you're you're being brainwashed, you know. So you already know you're now in Vietnam, and you you don't know where you're going from this place that you're at. Ended up, all three of us meet each other at the engine engineer compound, combat engineers with the 173rd Airborne. So now we're assigned to combat engineers. And, <clears throat> I mean, it, none of us could believe it, all three of us, you know. And I was assigned to a little Case 450 bulldozer. And what I did, they took, you know, a Chinook helicopter's got like two two blades, you know, and carries personnel, cargo and stuff. Well, I had to, the Chinook, the Chinook would come in, I had to hook up the harness to the hook coming down through the center. And then I had to crawl up through the center, but you have to be careful where you where you touch because with those rotors going on, it creates a pretty good electronic charge. So you, I crawl up in there and then we take off and it sets the bulldozer down on top of a mountain. And what I did was, uh, there was 10 other guys up there. What we did was we cleared off the top of the mountain. We had a company of infantry at the bottom of the mountain to protect you know, everything around us. And we had to build a fire base on top. We had to put up bunkers. We had to clear everything to where we didn't know what guns they were going to bring up. They could have brought 155 howitzers. They could have brought 105 howitzers. They could have put, uh, made it a mortar base with four deuce mortars and all this stuff. And so we built that, and uh, I mean, a lot of stuff we had to blow up, so we had all the stuff to blow up with, you know. Um, one funny time was when we had a giant, giant boulder that had to go because it was obstructing the view. And uh, what I did was take the bulldozer and cut away at the bottom to make kind of make it go in. And packed a, packed a bunch of explosives in there, cratering charges and shape charges and uh, you know, shape charges direct all the blast into one direction. And then the cratering charges just blows everything out. And they packed that thing full. 
and we got on the other side behind a bunker and they had called in to let you know helicopters or whatever know to stay out of the area we were going to blow this up and uh, it just so happened there was a general was wanting to see how we were progressing on top of this mountain and uh, for some reason they either ignored it or didn't get the message so we blew it up right when he was coming in to look and when we blew it up i mean they immediately just bugged out of there you know <laughs> i don't know what the general had to say you know but uh it, it was pretty funny but you know they they told him say yeah we sent the message out don't know why you didn't get it you know but uh, i mean nothing happened over it but it i imagine it scared him pretty good i mean they didn't get hit with anything but they were close enough to where he got, you know, he might have thought that Charlie was shooting at him or something, you know. But um, it was uh, it was pretty wild. Um, you know, as, as far as the MOS we had, I mean, we weren't, you know, the three of us weren't um, considered infantry. Uh, we we didn't have those types of MOSs. So, you know, I, I mean, anything can happen over there. Um, you know, they, they booby trap everything. I mean, one time I went out with, uh, it was a Delta company, and uh, it was a re regular company of men. And uh, I went along with a, uh, a E-5 sergeant, and we were going out as an EOD team. We brought explosive death cord and all that with us in case we found anything that needed to be blown up. And uh, you know, the one one thing I remember when when we when we got there, we started going out and we came up on a base that uh, was run by the first cav. It had a, a giant rock and it had a great big huge first cav patch, which is the yellow patch with a black line through it, and it had a horse in one corner. And uh, that was that was their calf patch, and it was painted on that rock. It had about I'd say 600 GIs on it, and uh, in '67 they were overrun by a lot of NBA regulars, and it pretty much wiped them out. But every time they go through that area, they would find unexploded rounds, and that's what we did. We went through there, and sure enough, we found three mortars that weren't exploded. We had to blow them up. And uh, then I remember we were going up this mountain, and uh, boy, I tell you, I, that was a climb. I, you know, if we hadn't got to the top when we did, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I mean, I was, you know, and at that time I smoked cigarettes, so that made it even worse, you know. But uh, really weird, because once we got to the top, there was a campfire going, there was pots on there. We, we run Charlie out of there. There must have been four or five of them up there. And when they heard us coming, they took off. They had a pot of rice cooking, you know, they had a fire going and uh, left a couple of things. But, um, you know, you're told, do not touch anything. Do not touch anything, because they like to booby trap stuff. So we, we just left it as it was. And, uh, you know, after, after a little while, you know, of course you spread out you know, and they had like recons looking, you know, and uh, making sure that they were gone. And, uh, you know, spent three days humping that mountain. Um,
came up on a, a elephant pit because they used to use elephants to transport ammunition and things. And uh, it, it was pretty wild, just, you know, it was good size, probably, I'd say probably 30 feet by 30 feet and probably about 40 feet deep. And down at the bottom was giant bamboo ponji sticks. Um, if it was an actual working pit, it would have, some of us probably would have fell in it because they would have had it covered. But it was, it was uncovered, it was not used anymore, you know, and that's the only reason we found it. And uh, ended up uh, getting resupplied. We made it down near what they call a wet line. It was a little creek, you know, that we could wash in and stuff. And we were getting resupplied and that one chopper came in and he called me over there. He said, you got two friends, uh, Clark and, and uh, Claude. Uh, I said, yeah. He said, you're with the engineers? I said, yeah. He said, well, the message to you is come back to uh, the company. Your two friends have gone home, and your orders are waiting for you there to go home. We got an early out. And uh, so I last chopper in. I jumped on, got to the company, cleared out everything, turned in my weapon, and got my orders, and Next thing I know, I'm headed to Cameron Bay coming home. And uh, so I worked, you know, as far as my, my career, I mean, I've had a lot of jobs, you know. Uh, but basically what I did, uh, I had a pretty good mechanical aptitude as far as working on, uh, you know, uh, cars and trucks. And, I mean, even in the military, I'd... I'd work on some of the equipment, you know. And uh, so I went to work as a mechanic, did that for about probably around 30 years. Um, ended up, uh, I, I worked for several Chrysler dealerships. I was uh, what you'd consider heavy engine. Uh, I've, I've built a lot of motors. In, in fact, in between... Um, this, this guy had a, a machine shop and an auto parts, and he ended up talking me into going to work for him running the machine shop. And, I've, I mean, I've built several race engines and did a lot of engine boring and valve jobs and um, what they call port and polish, you know, building heads up to for racing engines and stuff. So I, I did that for about three years, and um, he was getting ready to sell his business so I went back to the dealership and finally over all those years it, it changed so much I mean it used to when I first started doing it and all it was a lot of fun you know I mean I enjoyed it the pay was good um, you you basically worked for like a 60-40 or sometimes 70-30 split you got either 60% of the labor or 70% or of the labor and the company got all the parts and the rest of the labor and that's how you got paid and then they started going to, no, we're just going to pay you so much an hour and we're going to go buy the Chilton Manual and whatever the job pays per hour, that's what you're going to get paid. Well, then nobody takes in consideration, you know, if you've worked a long time, you've got $25,000, $30,000 wrapped up in tools and, and you know, toolboxes. And, uh, I mean, it, to accumulate what I had, it takes years, you know, especially when you go specialized, you've got to have a lot of specialty equipment. And uh, some stuff the dealer buys, but, you know, they don't buy everything. And uh, 
you know, a lot of a lot of folks got out of it for that simple reason, and then they wanted to stick a young fellow with me and me teach him what I know so that he could get the customer pay tickets and stick me with the warranty. And finally, I, I just had it. I said, that's it. So in 1999, I just hung it up. And uh, three months later, I had uh, the mailman that used to deliver, deliver mail for me. He, uh, he said, you want to work for a post office? I said, sure. So he got me an uh, interview and Next thing I know, I'm working for the post office and uh, started out as a sub. And three years later, uh, I got a regular route. Um, I think I think six or seven months after I started, um, Renee started. And that's where I, I met my wife, Renee. Um, but, you know, that... Going, you know, I, I need to probably backpedal going to, um, after I came home from Vietnam, I was a totally different person. You know, I, I don't think anybody realized, I, nobody really realized what a Vietnam War veteran went through. I mean, I didn't have to be in a foxhole getting shot at all the time. It's everything that you go through. And, I mean, I could have... We could have very easily been in a major firefight when I was out in the field. We could have very easily, in the middle of the night, had a bunch of VC or a regular NVA come up on top of that mountain and wipe us out. I mean, uh, you know, one base I went to, uh, Firebase Shamrock, I had to leave and go get some uh, uh, deck cord and some more explosives from the company. And a chopper picked me up, and when I got back out, found out that several of them had run through the encampment on top of one mountain, was throwing satchel charges, which is an explosive. You know, uh, nobody got killed, and there wasn't any serious injuries, but they, you know, blew up a couple of mortars. And so you never know with these, you know, I mean, what what can happen? You know, I mean, um, I mean, there's there's times when I went through an area where the elephant grass was 30 feet high. I mean, it cuts you like a razor. That's why everybody always wore their sleeves down, you know. I mean, all this Hollywood stuff rolled up and said, hey, that, you didn't do that, you know. And everybody wore their their helmet, not boonie caps, you know. But um, no, nobody, I mean, I, I just felt like I was living, I, I came home to a different country. I, I, I just, nothing felt right. I mean, for, you know, me loving to hunt, all the guns I had to hunt with, I sold everything, got rid of everything. I didn't even want to. I didn't even want to look at a gun, you know. And uh, you know, next thing you know, the, the family, oh, you know, you you're just, uh, you know, we don't even know who you are anymore. Heck, I didn't know who I was anymore, you know. Ended up, we got divorced, but uh, you know, we had a we had a girl, and. Uh, which I'm estranged from because everything we went through, they, you know, you're the bad guy. You did everything wrong. You're no good and teach the daughter that. And, you know, it just, you know, it weighs on you, you know, but, uh, I guess through everything I've experienced in my life so far, you know, I, especially with all that movement, I learned how just, I just had to turn it off. You know, I wasn't going to let it, you know, get me to the point that I'd just be 
no good to anybody, not even to myself. So I just learned how to turn it off, turn it off. And uh, after that divorce and everything, you know, I, uh, I finally I met somebody else. And uh, four years later, we, you know, we had a daughter. And then uh, the second year, we had another daughter. And, you know, things were okay, but uh, there were a lot of issues as time went on. You know, there, a lot of alcohol got into the middle of, you know, to where, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I would, I would try to get her straightened out and end up, you know, going into Ridgeview and, uh, you know, three different times, four times, I think, going to medical, you know, places to try to straighten you out and you know I ended up you know I just I, I couldn't deal with that anymore and uh, we got divorced after being together 35 years and uh, I got divorced in 99 and just went on you know I, I my, my daughters are fine we're all fine you know and uh, they kind of went through the same trauma that I did you know and, but they're both good they both have Good families, you know, good husbands, no alcohol, thank goodness. And uh, they gave me, uh, each one of them gave me four grandkids. Each one got two girls and two boys. So I've got four boys, grandsons, you know, and, and four granddaughters. And uh, it's all good, you know. And uh, But uh, Renee and I met at the post office and... Uh, she was going through some rough time, you know, and uh, I tried to be there for her. And I, could, I could tell because of what I went through, you know, I could tell she was struggling and everything. And we just got got to be real good friends. And, and you know, uh, I think I helped her along with, with the, what she was going through. And then we just hit it off one day. And uh, let's see, we got married. January of 2008 and uh, we, we always had Elvis in our life yeah. we went to uh, Elvis our first date was an Elvis impersonator at the uh, festival in, in Kennesaw uh, which they they do that every year and uh, then the next time we were uh, we w took a, a day ride up to Helen, Georgia, and we were out at one of the open gardens out sitting out front having some German lunch, you know, and, and all of a sudden both of us looked over there, and here comes a white Cadillac with the top down and sitting on the on the back of the seat, up, up on the, you know, top of the seat and waving at everybody. It was Elvis, <laughs> you know. So uh, we were getting ready for uh, Christmas one year. Um, well in the course of before we got married, but uh, we were looking for, we were looking for some ornaments and we found an Elvis ornament. And uh, no, we, we found an ornament that she liked. And I said, well, where's the hooks? I can't find any hooks. She said, well, there's gotta be a rack somewhere. And I started going around and looking and all of a sudden there's, there's a picture of Elvis and there's all these hooks on the rack. So. It seemed like at different times Elvis is always so. Here's here's the kicker to the whole thing. 
we got married at the courthouse in uh, Marietta. And as we came out, it was January the 8th, we turned on the radio. Well, I cranked the car up, the radio came on, and, he, and they got through playing, we caught the right end of an Elvis song, and uh, the guy said, and how was that on National Elvis Day? And we looked at each other, and <laughs> we got married on National Elvis Day. <laughs> oh, and it wasn't, it wasn't too long after that. I didn't realize, but she was a member of the church since 1991. And out of the blue, she looks at me and she said, I want to start going back to church. And I went, whoa. And I, I hadn't been in church since I was, I haven't gone to church since I was 17. No, no, this was in Jonesboro. I'd already moved up there. Um, I was about 18 years old. It was the last time I went to church. And, uh, I mean, I, I was, well, they say baptized, but, you know, they do the sprinkle thing and all, but I was Lutheran. And, uh, I, you know, when I was 16 and 15, I had, a, you know, I went every day to, to church down there in Brunswick. But anyway, uh, I said, okay, so what church you want to go to? Because every church I've looked for, I just did not feel the spirit. I just did not feel like I really wanted to go to that church, you know. And I mean, I I did look, and because I missed it. And uh, she said, "Well, um, there's a, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints right here in Kennesaw." And I, I said, "What? A church of what?" She said, "I'm Mormon." I said, "Oh." And, you know, everything that people have always said about Mormon or what I heard, you know, I, I just, you know, you know how people think it's a cult or something, you know. And I mean, I just I just never had any communication with anybody that was, you know, a member of the church or, um, you know, I just, it kind of like, I said, okay. I said, you're just now telling me this after we got married? <laughs> She said, "Well, I've just I've just been inactive because of my past husband, you know, and uh, he got her into the church, or he was he was in the church, and he, you know, it was a divorce. That, you know, I mean, it was a bad situation. He tried to kill her and all this stuff, you know, but uh, she went inactive, and she said, I, I I want to go back to church. I said, okay. I said, well, I'll go with you. I said, but don't start Bible thumping on me." So we went, and uh, this was uh, this was in probably end of, end of January when she said that, and uh, so we went. It was a Kennesaw ward. Uh, bishop McLeod was bishop then. Uh, as we sat down, and first off, I looked around and I said, "Man, this, this don't even look like a church." There's no cross, there's no candles, there's, you know, there's nothing that you know, would make me think this is a church, you know. I thought, what am I going to experience here, you know. So I'm sitting there, and three people were scheduled to give a talk. And 
So the first person's giving a talk, and I'm just, oh, I mean, I just feel like I'm being lectured, like I'm being talked to. And I looked at her. I said, did you tell anybody that you were bringing me? She said, no. She said, why? I said, well, what are, I said, have you heard what they're saying? Are, are they saying something to me? <laughs> she said, no, they're just giving a talk. I said, okay. So the second person gets up and gives their talk. And I'm going, <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like, like I'm being preached to. I mean, that's how I was taking it. I mean, they're, you know, what's going on here? I just, you know, and uh, so next Sunday I came to church, and the next Sunday I came to church, and then we invited the missionaries over to the house, and then about four lessons later I said I'm being, I, I want to be baptized. I've never had, you know, I mean, it was like I got a wake-up call. Uh, you know, just unbelievable, you know. And everything I'm hearing, and once once I was, you know, they taught me the plan of salvation, and I'm going, oh, man. You know, I said, I, you know, I've never, I've never heard anything like that, you know. And it all made sense to me. And, uh, February the 21st, I was baptized by Elder Bateman that stayed in the Kennesaw Ward for nine months. And he said, you know, I, said, I can't believe I've been here this long. And I said, well, uh, what I've figured out just now is you, you were supposed to baptize me. That's the reason you stayed here this long. Otherwise, you would have already been gone from here three months ago. You know, they don't let them stay in a ward that long. And uh, so the 22nd, I was ordained a member of the church and received the Holy Ghost uh, that Sunday. And uh, what a change that's made in, in our life. It, it pulled her through so much stuff. After all that time being not uh, inactive and me finding the, the true gospel and uh, and I, I mean I've had I've had things happen that that I know I, I know has been directed by the Lord you know uh, you know and it's it's like like when I had that motorcycle accident. Um, the two guys that were with me on a day ride, I mean, both of them, they, they, when they, at the hospital, they said, you know, um, the Lord ain't through with you yet. That's the only reason you're, I mean, I went through two liver transplants and both of them, I was at death's door on both of them and he wasn't going to let me go then and, uh, pulled me through that motorcycle wreck. I mean, it, it was like an angel had wrapped me up in the arms and just laid me down, you know. I mean, there was no, all I had was some rash, road rash, cut over the eye, I think, see, I think this eye. And uh, then the kicker was when I was at, at the doctor's office, 
and I still had my Harley. And just out of the blue, I mean, there was an empty chair next to me, and I was sitting there waiting, been waiting for a while. And all of a sudden, in my mind, in a loud, stern voice, sell your Harley. That was all it was said. But, I mean, it was, it was so strong that it made me look to, knowing that there's nobody there, and it made me just like I was being yelled into my ear, but it, it was, spoke to me in my mind. And, I mean, all that stuff just just confirms to me that this, this gospel's true. It confirms to me that the Lord sends you messages. You know, and I, I don't know, you you really don't realize what what you're supposed to do. I mean, whatever whatever we agreed to, or you know, that once the veil goes over your mind, you don't know. But you know, I've always I've always been the type of person. You know, I'd I'd like to be treated. You know, the way I want to be treated, I want to treat somebody else. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to do anybody any wrong. You know, I don't, you know, uh, I just want to do what, you know, the right thing, you know. And uh, I know the adversary works on me constantly every day, every day, because I get frustrated. I, you know, um, I, I just have to bite my tongue a lot of times. And I mean, it's just, I guess it's uh, in a way everything I've been through. And I mean, I know he tries to interrupt you know, just like when I was scheduled to go to uh, Atlanta Temple was closed for deep cleaning. And uh, I was getting ready for my endowment, you know, session. And uh, I had to go to the Birmingham Temple. I already had all my temple prep class done and everything. I already had a, a, a chaperone to go with me to help me through everything. And what was it? <sighs> We were supposed to go on a Saturday and Tuesday evening, and all of a sudden I come down with 104 fever. Had to go straight to Emory. Uh, I'd already had the first transplant, did I? No, no. I hadn't had a transplant yet. I didn't get the first transplant until uh, January of 2010. This was, uh, I had to wait a year, 2009, well... Yeah, I already had the first transplant. Sure did. And uh, took me to the hospital. They couldn't figure out why I had a fever. You know, they couldn't figure out what was causing it. They did probably about five blood cultures. And I mean, those blood cultures, that's a big tube. I mean, they're about that big around, about that long. I mean, they just draw a bunch of blood out of you. They did two at a time, and then finally got one more. But uh, it was determined that because I got a call from CDC, I mean, everything, everything worked out to where I got out of there and was able to go. Uh, I got out on a Friday, I think it was, after three days, and I was able to go get my endowments at Birmingham, but CDC called. And uh, they wanted to know had I been out of country, had I 
uh, had any seafood, um, and I, you know, told them, yeah, I uh, had oysters at the Oyster Cafe, and I had sushi at Thai Basil up in Ackworth. And you know that they contacted both of those places. They wanted to know who their supplier was, where they got the oysters from, where they got the shrimp from. They wanted to, they asked them all kinds of questions. Um, my son-in-law Googled, I forgot what they called that, but what it boils down to, it was the oysters. And the oysters were harvested out of contaminated water that had a bacteria in the water and he said you know what he said 50 percent of the people that contact this by this uh, bacteria die from it i said well ain't that that's nice I, I make it through a liver transplant and now i'm gonna die because the oyster had a bacteria but i mean they were able to treat me for it and all that stuff but uh you know, that, I felt like that's how the adversary is trying, you know, because he knew I was going to go for my endowment session, you know. And, I mean, I, I've, I've had a couple of instances where something weird would, would happen, you know. And I'm trying, I'm trying to move my, my life in the right direction, you know. And so he, he tries to kill me on a motorcycle wreck, <laughs> unsuccessful. Oh, my goodness, but, uh, you know, here we are. Um, uh, after after a year, I was ordained uh, a Melchizedek priesthood holder, um, you know, and uh, got my endowments done, and, uh, you know, it, it's been, it's been good. I think you feel... You feel more, um, you feel more family. I mean, it's not a, a giant ward, but we're trying to get it to that point. Um, we've come, you know, it, it, it come from a small, from a small branch and you know, everything's kind of like family, you know, and uh, it it makes you feel closer to people than it would if you were a, a big giant ward. And, you know, I would like to see more that are ward members come. And, you know, that's, that's something we tried to do back when we had the high priest group going and, you know, the, we, we would always go out uh, maybe every other Saturday and we would try to get the inactive, less active. And, um, you know, but as far as, as far as the ward, uh, it's more, it's more like family. And I'm glad to see we have families moving in that have children. Um, the, you know, the, the situation before was there was just never really that many that many kids in the ward and uh, bringing the new children in I think that's a big plus um, you know I would love I, I think the ward could be a lot bigger once we get a culture hall you know I've always said you know if you have a culture hall it will 
bring more people in because you have, I mean, you'll have the basketball court. You'll have things to, to where you're going to have more children coming in. You know, the ones, there's families I know that we have that don't come and they have kids, you know. Um, some of the families, I've only seen them come back to church on um, trunk or treat and then they don't show up the rest of the year, you know. But if you, you know, um, we're really limited to how many people can sit in the chapel. You know, I mean, a couple of Sundays we, we've noticed, I mean, that there's, you could have had, you know, five or six more, but, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't happen that much. Um, but it's still, it's still a, a close-knit family. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, the Dallas ward was, was pretty big. I mean, we had another whole chapel section, you know, and then we had the curtain. Um, it, it actually had more room than Etowah Valley. Etowah Valley, you have the, the long, big seating, and then you have the separation. Whereas in the Dallas ward, you had... You had the main section, and then behind it was another big section, and then you had the petition, you know, in the basketball court. So Dallas Ward was pretty big, and um, I mean, you knew a lot of people, you know, and uh, but when the ward's bigger, there's some that you don't get to really, you know. One thing I'd like to see is a little bit more. I mean, there's there's some that aren't mingling that much you know but uh you know i think we need to strengthen that up uh you know more more greeting one another um but as a as a whole uh, you know it, it's a loving ward you know uh, it, it's like you can go visit other wards but coming to calhoun and it's like coming home I would just tell them be be true to who you are. Uh, always obey God's law. And if any laws contradict God's laws, then disregard those laws. You know, uh, live your life the way God wants you to live your life. And if it means being persecuted or threatened, then stand your ground and stand always to never renounce uh, the Lord. Well, that brings us to a close for this week's podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed the personal history and stories presented today. And most of all, I hope it has brought you closer to another member of our ward.